Lord God, you inspired your servants John and Charles Wesley with burning zeal for the sanctification of souls and endowed them with eloquence in speech and song. Kindle such fervor in your church, we entreat you, that those whose faith has cooled may be warmed, and those who have not known Christ may turn to him and be saved, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, as you may have guessed from that particular collect, we're going to be taking a look today, and as you may have noticed also from the screen, we're going to be taking a look today at the life ministry and influence of the Wesleys, John and Charles, but mostly we're going to be taking a look at John Wesley today. So we have been taking a look at the history of the Anglican Church. Again, this is a survey course. This is not meant to be an in-depth history of every single aspect of the church's life. That would be a very long course. Um, That would be at least a year-long course. This is a survey of the history of Anglicanism. We'd been doing a lot of history, and so we took a break from that, and we took a look a little bit at the liturgy and the practices and the way we Anglicans worship and why we worship the way we do. Today I want to come back to the history, and uh, we're going to begin in the 18th century. Uh, In the 1730s is where we're going to begin today. We said that after the death of Queen Anne, Parliament had passed a rule that there would be no more Catholic monarchs to sit on the throne of England. England, by this point, by the 18th century now, is a thoroughly Protestant nation. The Hanoverian kings are now on the throne. This is George I, George II, and George III, the Hanoverians. Now, as Britain was growing, and Britain really was growing uh, in the 17th, 18th centuries especially. It started in the 16th century, but in the 17th and 18th centuries especially, Britain was really growing, almost exponentially. There's a sense in which it really had ceased to be a kingdom, and it had become a worldwide empire. Uh, Britain by the 18th century has holdings in many parts of the world. Uh, We're, of course, familiar with the holdings that she had here in North America. She had the original colonies, the 13 colonies. She had Canada. She had holdings in the Caribbean. They were making inroads in India and other places. Britain was becoming a nation that ruled the waves and ruled many parts of the land as well. It was becoming not only a large empire, it was becoming an affluent, wealthy empire. By the 18th century, it's no exaggeration to say that England probably was the most powerful nation on earth. Its rival, of course, France. Spain was in decline by this point. But England really was a powerful force to be reckoned with. Cotton Mather, who was one of the great Puritan preachers here in America, once said, and I love this quote, I quoted it recently uh, in the Romans class, he said, wherever Christianity has gone, it always produces affluence. That is to say, it leaves people better off than they were before. He said, but then the daughter devours the mother meaning that it is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the main reason for that, of course, is that the wealthy have so many things to distract them. Some years ago, I was visiting um, the Biltmore Estate. First time I'd ever been to the Biltmore. I've been there many times since, and I've been to all of the Vanderbilt Estates up in Newport. But the first time I'd ever been to the Biltmore, I was just in awe. And if anybody knows me, you could just imagine what my favorite room was in that great mansion. It's a library. I mean, I could have just lived in that room for the rest of my life. I mean, thousands upon thousands of volumes. And in those days, you didn't have an acoustic guide. You went through with an actual guide. And so they were actually telling you a little bit about it. 
And one of the things that the guy just threw out was that Mr. Vanderbilt, George Washington Vanderbilt, was interested in all kinds of subjects, architecture, art, history, philosophy, and she said he had a real interest in theology. In fact, she said, he almost considered becoming an Episcopal priest. Well, at that time, I was an Episcopal priest. I thought, wow, why didn't he become an Episcopal priest? You know, I wondered. So I waited to the end of the tour, and at the very end, as we're getting ready to go out, uh, she said, are there any questions? And I raised my hand, and I said, "Um, yes, you said that Mr. Vanderbilt had an interest in theology and almost thought about becoming a priest. Why didn't he? And she just looked at me over her glasses, and she said, take a look around. Let's just say he had a few distractions. (laughs) Well, how true that is. Um, There are many distractions that the wealthy have. And Jesus talks about the dangers of wealth over and over again in the Gospels. Well, there is a sense in which that was uh, really typical of England in the 18th century. She had become a very powerful and wealthy nation. And uh, even uh, the middle class was on the rise. Um, huge middle class in the 18th and 19th century in England. This is unlike almost any other country in the world. And yet, while England was becoming wealthier, more powerful, her religious zeal was waning. In fact, the beginning of the 18th century was really one of the low points in English society. They had all of the doctrine right. They had these beautiful churches. They had a gorgeous liturgy. And yet the people were apathetic. How does Jesus put it? He said, I wish that you were hot or cold, but if you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Well, that was an apt description of Britain in the 18th century, lukewarm. Neither hot nor cold. And onto the scene steps this man, John Wesley. And everything is going to change as the consequence, really, of this one man. It's a a powerful testimony to what God can do with a single individual and how he can transform a nation and even transform a world. What do we know about John Wesley? Just briefly, um, John Wesley was um, a child of the rectory. Those of you who are in the Romans class, we talked a little bit about Wesley because he was greatly influenced, in fact, converted as a consequence of Paul's epistle to the Romans. He was a child of the rectory. His father was a vicar. In fact, his father was a renowned Old Testament scholar, an expert in Hebrew. He was a very scholarly individual. So he was a child of the vicarage or a child of the rectory. His mother was also a sought-after spiritual guide, which was rather extraordinary for women in that time period. But she was sought after for her wisdom on any kind of spiritual subject. So he came from a very long tradition of faithful Christian people. He and his brother Charles, who was his younger brother, were sent off to Oxford University, where they did very well. Uh, They were very academically inclined, but they were also serious young men. Wesley John, in particular, was a very serious young man, and he took seriously his call to be a Christian. While he was there at Oxford University, he established what became known as the Holy Club, I've said to you before, that's not one of the clubs that I would have joined when I was in college. But nevertheless, he established what became known as a holy club. And there were a number of serious young men who joined that club. Uh, They were very methodical in the way that they approached religion. Uh, They went to church every single day. They went in the morning. 
They went for noonday prayers, and they went in the evening. Uh, they would go down and work among the poor and the afflicted in the 18th century. Oftentimes, the poor and the afflicted were disregarded. Um, this was especially true for those who were mentally insane. They were simply thrown into places, oftentimes into debtors' prisons, because they were destitute. But Wesley had a heart for these people. He had a heart for the down-and-outers, for those who were living in the worst parts of town. And he and the members of the Holy Club would go out and they would preach to these people and care for their needs and even minister medicine to them from time to time. They were also methodical, and incidentally, that's where the name comes from, Methodist. It's because they were methodical. Originally, they were a movement within the Church of England. They were not a separate denomination. So they were part of the Church of England, but they were methodical in their approach to things. He memorized the entire book of Psalms, all of the Psalter, by heart. And if you were a member of the Holy Club, you were expected to do that. So all the members literally read, marked, learned, and inwardly digested Holy Scripture. They were an extraordinary group of young men, and they were greatly admired by the undergraduates in their college at Oxford. He decided to take up holy orders like his father, he and his brother Charles both, as a matter of fact. He would be ordained by the Bishop of Oxford as a deacon, ordained as a priest, and he had a heart to take the gospel to the heathen. And so he came to America, which he thought, I guess, was a good place to begin. And in particular, he decided to go to Cockspur Island, Georgia which is where Savannah is today. And so he went there, and he began to establish a Christian ministry. He was the founding rector of what became the mother church of the Diocese of Georgia, Christ Church, which is still there today. He was the founding rector. His real heart, quite frankly, was to minister to the Native Americans. That was why, really why he came here. And everybody expected that he would do great things. But there was such need among just the English population that he found most of his time was taken up just ministering to the colonists. And he worked very hard there for about two or three years. His congregation was growing. But Wesley ran into difficulties. Uh, he was a man who wrestled with the whole notion of clerical celibacy. Uh, he believed that if you were going to be serious about the ministry, uh, you couldn't be distracted by such things as a family. And yet he met a young woman there in Georgia, and he was attracted to her, and she was attracted to him. And um, he sort of strung her along, you know, which is not a good thing to do to a young woman. She left Savannah for a time period. She went off. When she came back, she was married to another man. And she presented herself for Holy Communion one Sunday, and uh, Wesley was irritated by this, and he was a strict follower of the rules, and he noticed in the rubrics that if you were gone for a time and you were presenting yourself for Holy Communion, you needed to notify the rector. And she had not notified the rector. She showed up with a new husband, and he excommunicated her at the rail. He refused to give her Holy Communion. So let that be a lesson to you all. <laughs> At any rate, this was the state church. This was the established church in the colony of Georgia. He had shamed a citizen publicly. She sued him. And the result was that he had to flee the colony of Georgia 
and he left and he came here. And when I say here, I don't mean just here, Charles, but I mean he came here to St. Philip's. Um, eventually, he decided that he needed to go back to England. Um, he was an absolute failure by this point. So much was expected of him. He was so bright. Everybody expected that he would be a, a giant, um, but he was an absolute failure. Now, it should be said that on the way over here, he had encountered a group of Moravian Christians making their way to America as well. Now, the Moravians are, are from um, Germanic nations. They're oftentimes very similar in terms of their theology to the Lutherans. You know that there are um, Moravian communities up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and near Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and other places. But the Moravians were there. He encountered the Moravians, and one of the things that he was struck by was their deep sense of assurance, their confidence in the gospel. And, and the way that it seemed that they had this very intimate relationship with Christ. Now, he had all of the answers, and they were impressed with his theology, his grasp of history, his grasp of doctrine, the fact that he was fluent in Greek and Hebrew and Latin, all those things. They were, they were just in awe of that. But they did sense that he just didn't have this intimate relationship with Christ. That they got the sense that he knew a great deal about Christ, but he didn't really know Christ, and they as much as told him so. Of course, he sort of brushed that off when he was down there working in Savannah. But now that he's returning to England as an absolute failure, he begins to wonder if they hadn't been right. And he wandered one night in London, really struggling with this. And he came to Aldersgate Street, and he knew there was a small Moravian chapel there. And he wandered into that Moravian chapel, dejected, distressed for his very salvation, and he heard the leader in that Moravian chapel reading from Martin Luther's commentary on Paul's epistle to the Romans. And he said at about a quarter to nine, I love the fact that he actually marked down the time, very methodical. At about a quarter to nine, he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And he said, I knew that I truly did believe. And I knew that Christ had died for my sins, even mine. And that was a transformative event for John Wesley. And that man, who would be an abject failure up to this point, is going to become one of the most powerful forces for change in England and her entire empire. So that strange warming of the heart was something that he shared with his brother, who actually had had a similar experience just a few weeks before. This all happened in 1738. His younger brother wrote to him about it, a description of his own conversion. You may be familiar with it. It's not in the 1940 hymnal, but I'm happy to say it's going to be in the new Acne hymnal. It's a great hymn. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? The hymn is called, And Can It Be? And it's one of the great hymns in the English language, and it was written by Charles Wesley, but it is an apt description of his conversion, and not just his conversion, but the conversion of his brother as well. 
Just think about that. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And indeed, Wesley did. He followed the Lord to the end of his life. Now, he was a priest in the Church of England. But, you know, Anglicans are not, you know, enthusiasts. Uh, You know, we're, we're not an excitable people. That's just not our nature. And Wesley was now a very excitable individual. He had been a high churchman. He had been a loyal churchman. If it wasn't in the prayer book, then don't do it. All of a sudden, he's praying extemporaneously, which was a little startling to the congregation and startling to his fellow clergy. Not only that, but he began to preach to people that weren't in his parish. Now, in England in those days, there was an established parish system. You're not supposed to go into somebody else's church and preach. But Wesley did it. Sometimes, to the surprise and chagrin of the other clergy. So he found himself, as 1738 wore on, locked out of many churches. He hadn't a parish at this point. He was ordained, but he hadn't been established in a parish. But now he's finding himself locked out. He's not even being called upon to be a supply priest. You know, when somebody goes on vacation, they need somebody to fill in. They're not even calling him for that because they just don't know what he's going to do. You know, you might leave and you have this wonderful congregation. You come back and all of a sudden they're holy rollers. And it's all because of John Wesley. Well, I don't want him. And so Wesley finds himself locked out at this point. But there were other men in his circle of friends who had had a similar awakening at this point. One, of course, was his brother Charles, you see up there on the screen. And the other was somebody who would be just as famous, even more famous, actually, than Wesley in his own time. Wesley's become more famous to us today. But in the 18th century, this man was actually more famous, particularly here in America, than even Wesley was. And that was George Whitfield. Whitfield was considered to be the silver trumpet of preachers. I mean, just an extraordinary individual. Even Benjamin Franklin, who was a deist, was enthralled by the preaching of George Whitfield. The, the rumor was that Whitfield, without any amplification, could preach to a crowd of over 20,000 people. Well, Franklin just didn't believe that. That's not possible. Nobody could do that. So when Whitfield came to Philadelphia to preach, Franklin, being the scientist that he was, did a little experiment, and he marked out the entire area to see how many people would fit into a space, 20,000 people into one space, and then he went to the very back of that crowd, the very back of that space, to see if he could hear Whitfield, and he said he could hear him as clear as a bell. Whitfield was an extraordinary preacher. Well, these three men began to preach. Whitfield was the first one to start preaching out of doors. He, too, was ordained in the Church of England. He was a deacon. He was a priest. But he, too, was an enthusiast, praying prayers that weren't in the prayer book, preaching about the necessity of the new birth. You have to be born again in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you wouldn't think that this would be too dramatic, too controversial. I mean, Jesus himself said you must be born again. But nevertheless, for those state priests in the Church of England, this was very controversial. And so Whitfield, finding himself locked out of churches, simply preached on the street corner. He went out into the fields and he began to preach. And he called on Wesley to do the same thing. Now, Wesley, being a child of the rectory, was somewhat reluctant to do that. That's a little unseemly, he thought. 
But Whitfield persuaded him to at least give it one shot. And he did. And he never went back. He would continue to preach out of doors for the rest of his days. And his impact would be felt not only in England, but over here in America as well. Let's talk a little bit about the distinguishing marks of the Wesleyan or the Methodist movement as it would eventually become. First thing to understand is that all three of those men, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, never intended to leave the Church of England. And, in fact, never did leave the Church of England. In fact, that colic that I prayed at the beginning of class, that's a colic from the Book of Common Prayer, Lesser Feasts and Fasts for the feast day of John and Charles Wesley. Whitfield's got his own day as well. So none of these men ever intended to leave Anglicanism. What they wanted to do was to reform Anglicanism, in the same way that Martin Luther had no intention of actually leaving the medieval church, the Roman Catholic Church. What he wanted to do was to reform it. Now, what became a reform movement eventually morphed into a revolution, and we're going to see that something very similar happens with Wesley. But all three of those men died as priests in good standing in the Church of England. So that's the first thing to understand. He was born again, if you will, converted May 24, 1738. In 1739, he preaches outside for the very first time. In 1739, he makes a break with the Moravians. He had been allied with the Moravians, working with the Moravians, but he broke with the Moravians over an issue of theology. The Moravians believed that it was possible for a person to actually become sinless in this life. That once you came to be a Christian through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, it was possible to achieve a state of sinlessness in this life. Wesley had his doubts about that. The other thing that the Moravians believed was that you should have absolute assurance. If your mind was in any way plagued by any doubts or questions whatsoever, that was an indicator that you were not truly saved. Well, Wesley had some doubts. He had some concerns. And what's more, as he studied the scriptures, he recognized there were other people who had doubts. I mean, Thomas, for example, who was one of the apostles. And so he made a break with the Moravians, but what he did is he began to establish his own little societies, which were like Moravian meeting groups. He called them Methodist societies. Methodism in the 18th century was particularly popular with the working classes. Wesley went out, just as he had earlier, to the down and outers. He went to the, to the day workers, the day laborers. He went out into the fields and he spoke to the farmers. In the Church of England, the expectation was that you will come to the church. You will come to the church to hear the gospel if you're interested in such things. That's what the church is there for. We have services. You show up. You don't show up, that's your own fault. Wesley felt that the gospel ought to be taken to the people. After all, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, and so that is exactly what he did. So Methodism began to grow. It began to grow among the working classes. So you're beginning to see that there was a bit of a conflict between the upper classes and the middle classes and the lower classes. So that's where Wesleyanism is really growing. Wesley basically had four things that he emphasized in his Methodist societies. It's sometimes referred to as the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Now, that's not a term that he used. 
is what a later historian used, but it's an apt description of the way he approached his work. He believed four things were absolutely essential to true Christian preaching. One was the primacy of Holy Scripture. He was a good, loyal churchman. He was a Protestant. And like all of those that came out of the English Reformation, he believed in the primacy of Holy Scripture. If it wasn't found in the Word of God, Wesley was not interested in it. This is what he said on one occasion. He said, I want to know one thing. I want to know the way to heaven. I want to know how to land safe on that happy shore. Well, let me ask you a question. How many of you want to know the way to heaven? How many of you would like to land safe on that happy shore? Wesley said, God has shown the way. What's more, he said, he has written it down in a book. He said, give me that book and make me a man of one book. That was John Wesley. He was a man of the book. He believed in the primacy of Holy Scripture. But, coming out of the Church of England, he also believed in tradition. Now, tradition here was not local tradition. It was the tradition of the church. Whatever was to be believed or taught had to be in line with what Christians have believed for centuries. In this sense, he's just like many of the English reformers of the 16th century, very much like the Caroline Divines. He is loyal to the tradition of the church. He also believed that whatever was preached ought to be reasonable. It ought to make sense. So he was not forsaking intellect. And he emphasized religious experience. Now, I know some people say, ah, that sounds very much like the three-legged or the four-legged stole, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Wesley did not mean anything like what Jack Spong or somebody else today would mean by that. Scripture was the ultimate authority for the life of the church. How we understand Scripture is interpreted through the tradition of the church. It ought to make sense. It ought to be reasonable. But everybody ought to have an experience. And when he talked about experience, he wasn't talking about your own experience in terms of what you believe or what you don't believe. What he meant was that everybody had to experience that strange warming of the heart. It was not enough to be able to stand up and say the creed without crossing your fingers. You really had to have a living encounter with the living God. Christianity was not about religion. It was about a relationship as far as Wesley was concerned. And so to truly be a Christian, you had to have a living encounter with God. And that encounter, Wesley believed, was going to change you. You never come into contact with Jesus Christ and are left the same. And so Wesley emphasized this kind of religious experience, this strange warming of the heart, this new birth. Now, once you had all of those things, once you'd come into contact with the Holy Scriptures, once you'd been born again, Wesley emphasized a number of things. First of all, he emphasized piety. If you were a new creation, you were expected to live like a new creation. So Wesley emphasized saying your prayers, weekly attendance at worship. He preferred daily attendance at worship. Incidentally, that's why we call morning prayer the daily office. Did you know that? The reason why Holy Communion was the principal service on Sunday is because you went to church every day of the week. 
you went to morning prayer Monday through Friday. Saturday you had off, but then Sunday was the Lord's Day, the Feast of the Resurrection. So the daily office, daily morning and evening prayer was just that. And Wesley expected people to do that. The Methodists were the earliest proponents, or some of the earliest proponents, as a group of abolition. And when I say abolition, I'm not just talking about the abolition of the slave trade. There were many in the 18th century who recognized that the Middle Passage was a tragic thing. Wesley, of course, had come into contact with slavery when he was ministering in Georgia. And there were many who recognized that the slave trade needed to come to an end. And, of course, it did eventually in the 1830s in the British Empire, in large measure due to the works of people like William Wilberforce. But Wesley was not simply an opponent of the slave trade. He was an opponent of slavery, period. He thought that it was a moral evil, and on more than one occasion, in a day when this was not fashionable, by the way, he spoke out against slavery. He was an opponent of slavery and a proponent of abolition. He supported lay preachers. He supported lay preachers. He was appalled by the level of incompetence among the clergy in the Church of England. And he felt that some of them, while they had been ordained, had never been reborn. What could they do to make a difference in anybody's life? And yet he had laymen out there that knew more about the scriptures than the educated clergy of the Church of England. And so he encouraged lay people to share their faith, to preach. He even encouraged women to do it. Now remember, this is the 18th century. And he's encouraging women to actually preach. Now, it's interesting... I need to qualify this. Wesley, being the high churchman that he was, did not advocate the ordination of women. He didn't believe that they ought to celebrate the sacraments, but he believed, like everybody else, they were called and they were ordained at the time of their confirmation. They were expected to preach the gospel. And so women did serve as preachers in Methodist societies and chapels. Now just imagine how controversial this would have been in the 18th century. In the Church of England, it was dramatic. He tried to encourage the Bishop of Oxford to ordain some men to come over here to America in the wake of the American Revolution. Remember, the Church of England almost died, well, you're going to find out, almost died here in America following the Revolution. Of all the denominations that suffered the most as a consequence of the American Revolution, Anglicanism suffered the greatest. Why do you think that is? Because the Church of England but all of the clergy were required to take an oath of allegiance to the king. So they were Tories. So a, a large number of them, the vast majority, in fact, fled and went to Canada or back to England as a consequence. So he had been encouraging the Bishop of England, or the Bishop of London, to go ahead and send ordained men over here to the colonies. The Bishop of London refused to do so. And yet there were these people, these Methodist societies that were growing over here in America. Whitfield had brought the message over here. Things were happening. What was he going to do? Wesley decided in the end that if the Bishop of Oxford was not going to do it, the word of God could not be chained. He had come to the conviction that he was as much in apostolic succession as any mitered head in England. And so he decided to take it upon himself, and he ordained three men as priests and sent them to America. Those three men were Thomas Coke, Richard Whitecoat, 
and Thomas Vassy. Now, it should be said about the first one, Thomas Coke, he was already a priest in the Church of England. But Wesley served as his bishop and sent him overseas. Wesley's impact is profound. During the course of his life, he rode over 250,000 miles on horseback. 250,000 miles on horseback. He preached two and three times a day. He gave away a small fortune, 30,000 pounds, which in that day was a considerable sum of money. would have set you up for life. He preached more than 40,000 sermons. He formed societies. He opened chapels. He ministered to the sick. He actually invented a machine for electric shock treatment for the sick. And he ministered to the sick. He superintended orphanages, including the Kingswood School in Bath, England, which is one of the largest orphanages in England. It has now become a private school for boys and girls, a very distinguished school, originally founded to educate Methodist clergy. He advocated temperance. He was a teetotaler. And he published over 400 articles on history, theology, and devotional practices. Now, that's quite a life, folks. That's quite a life. The man who had started off as a failure is a success in almost everything he touches, with one exception. Marriage. You could just imagine that anybody that lives like this is going to be very difficult to live with. And he was difficult. In fact, as I said earlier, he believed in clerical celibacy. Uh, He believed that a clergyman can really never devote himself to the work of the gospel if he's distracted by children and wives and that sort of thing. But this was the 18th century. Um, There was the sense in which everybody ought to have a family, and that family ought to be in service to the empire. And so he was encouraged to find a wife, so eventually he married. He married a woman who was a widow. She had four children of her own. She was wealthy. There's nothing that she needed from Wesley, except... Love, concern, time, and he had none of those to give. She left him several times and came back. At least four or five times during the course of their marriage. She could be a bit of a shrew. I mean, that's just a fact. There is one recorded incident of domestic abuse in the Wesley home. And it wasn't him abusing her. The story goes that they saw her dragging him across the floor by his hair. She eventually abandoned him. She couldn't take it anymore. She abandoned him. And he recorded these words in his journal. I never left her. I never forsook her. I will not remember her. And yet, his influence was so great in England in terms of the leavening influence that he had, the number of people that were converted, that it is no exaggeration to say that by the end of the 18th century, the beginning of the 19th century, all of English society had been touched by the Methodist movement 
and all of English society had been transformed, including the established Church of England, transformed. Literally, hundreds of thousands of people experienced what Wesley himself experienced as a consequence of his preaching, that strange warming of the heart. And many historians believe that the only reason that England did not go through a bloody reign of terror comparable to what the French experienced during the time of the French Revolution was because of the influence of the preaching of John Wesley. This was Wesley's prayer. He wrote this prayer. It was the prayer that he himself prayed in 1738. And it's the prayer that he encouraged all of his followers to pray. It's called the Wesleyan Covenant Prayer. Ask yourself if you're prepared to pray as Wesley prayed. He said, O Lord, I am no longer mine own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Thou art mine and I am thine. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. He meant it. He lived it. And the world has never been the same because of it. The age of Wesley. Transformation of English society. Any questions? We've got about four minutes. Ah, lots of questions. Okay. Well, I'm just start off here. Yes, DeVos. George Whitfield had a presence in Charleston at one time. He did. George Whitfield did have a presence here in Charleston. He started a great revival that took place here in Charleston. He was not permitted by Alexander Garden to preach from the pulpit of St. Philip's Church. So, uh, but he did. He had a profound impact. In fact, Richard Hudson, uh, some of you know, um, shared with me when I first arrived here that one of his descendants was converted as a result of the preaching of George Whitfield here, which took place in, in Charleston. Yeah. Incidentally, it's interesting to note, Whitfield, many of the churches that were established, and there were a lot of churches that were established by Whitfield. Remember, he was a priest of the Church of England. Most of those churches, interestingly enough, in America became Baptist churches. So when an Anglican is accused of sounding like a Baptist, sometimes it's a good thing. So, yes? You know, I do not know the answer to that. I think he's, uh, actually, he stayed at the home of the rector of St. Philip's Church. So I don't know where that was uh, in that particular time. The current rectory wasn't purchased by the church until 1906. So, but whatever, wherever he stayed when Wesley was here, he stayed with the rector of St. Philip's Church, wherever that may have been. Bonnie? Um, 
<laughs> I, I think that, um, yeah, he did not have, uh, he was very successful in many things. He was not good with women. I mean, I, I think that's the best thing I can say. Did he ever make amends with that woman? I, I don't know that he ever closed that circuit. Um, what we do know is that she sued him and he had to flee. So I, probably not. <laughs> probably not. So, Martha. I don't um, know that he had any children. Um, incidentally, his brother, Charles, had a passel of children and a very happy marriage. Charles had a very happy marriage. And uh, Charles and John, at times, were a little bit like iron sharpening iron, quite frankly, and there were sparks. Uh, Charles opposed his brother ordaining people. He felt that that was not lawful. And, um, and he was very upset with his brother about the marriage relationship. But um, God uses us in spite of ourselves. Yes. That is true. Um, when he was a child, uh, the rectory where he lived uh, caught fire. Uh, it was not uncommon, as you know. Um, people used candles, um, whale oil lamps, fire, open fires, that sort of thing. Fires were not unusual. Um, as you know, this church burned down twice before and has been rebuilt. Um, and yes, the rectory where he was living caught fire. And um, trying to get everybody out, um, they weren't sure that everybody was there. It was great confusion and so forth. And young Wesley... John Wesley was seen in an upper story window engulfed in flames. And um, somebody climbed up on the roof and rescued him and took him out. And years later, he felt that that was divine providence. He said, I was quite literally a brand plucked from the burning. So, and I think that's the way he looked at the whole of his life. That's the way he looked at the whole of his life. I will say this about his marriage. I think if Wesley had had it his way and he didn't feel like he was under pressure from people in the 18th century, who emphasized family, you know. Remember, when George III especially came to the throne, um, Farmer George, as he was called, the English king, he had a great love for family. He had a large family. He loved his children. And they set the standard for everybody else. And so the great dream was that everybody would have a family like the king, and everybody else would have children. And Wesley wasn't interested in that sort of thing, quite frankly. He probably would have been better off if he'd remained single. But he was under tremendous pressure. He felt that his ministry would falter if he didn't get married. So, yes. You know, in the early days, one of the rectories of this church was where the college of Chelsea Friends were by church. That is right. Um, where Bishop Smith lived. Yes, that's right. Yes. That's right. It becomes the Methodist church, basically. These were Methodist societies. They never called themselves a church, incidentally. In those early days, they never said, this is a Methodist church. It was a Methodist chapel or a Methodist society. There was only one church in England. And incidentally, even Roman Catholic churches were not permitted to be called chapels. I mean, churches, they were called chapels. Because according to law, there was only one church in England, that was the English church, the Church of England. So they were called Methodist chapels. 
it really became a separate denomination in America. Even in England today, many of Methodist churches are called Methodist chapels, even today. So they eventually did spiral off. And incidentally, Methodism would become the largest, at one point, the largest Protestant denomination in America. So, yes. Yeah, the question is, was um, Wesley somewhat egotistical? Um, yes. Um, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, I, I think um, Wesley was sometimes wrong, but never in doubt. Um, and um, he was absolutely committed to his cause. He was single-minded. And I think he was very difficult to work with. People like that generally are very difficult to work with. That doesn't mean that God doesn't use them. It just means that they're difficult for other people to deal with. He broke with the Moravians. He broke with George Whitfield. They've been very close friends, but they broke over the, the, the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. He, he broke with lots of people over the course of his life. The one thing he never faltered on was the single-minded devotion to preach the gospel to every living creature. So I think this is a good day for us to remember All Saints Day, and you're going to hear this if you haven't already, the saints weren't perfect people. They were redeemed people. And God used them in spite of themselves, and that is certainly the case with John Wesley. Let's close with a word of prayer, and we'll go off to church. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the life and witness of John Wesley, Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, lights in their generation, We're so thankful that England did not go through that reign of terror, that she continued to be a light and a moral guide for decades, generations to come. It was the English evangelicals, influenced by Wesley and others, who were the first to bring the slave trade to an end. We thank you for their witness, for their courage, for their strength. And we thank you, Lord, that you used Wesley and you use us even today in spite of ourselves for your glory and honor. So, Lord, grant us the grace to make that covenant that Wesley made with you. May the covenant we make here on earth be ratified in heaven. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you.